DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with Ignatius Press, presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is, according to many critics and fond readers, the great American novel. Full of vibrant American characters, intriguing regional dialects and folkways, and down-home good humor, it also hits Americans in one of their greatest and ongoing sore spots, the fraught issue of racism. As Huck and Jim float down the Mississippi and encounter all manner of people and situations, And as Huck struggles mightily with his conscience concerning Jim, the novel strongly invites a moral and religious perspective. We now begin our discussion on Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn. Let's talk about Samuel Clemens, as many Americans know him, and people around the world as Mark Twain. Yes, well, I look forward to discussing Mark Twain, as my accent will betray, and as they say, many people know I'm not an American. I'm an Englishman who, I'm now a U.S. citizen, in fact, so I suppose I am an American, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I've been over here nine years, and um, when I arrived in the United States, my knowledge of American literature was woefully ignorant, and since then, I've obviously made some effort to uh, not be quite so ignorant. Very happy to discuss with you uh, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, Mm -hmm. and indeed uh, the other American authors we've included in the Ignatius Critical Edition series, but um, I'm sort of uh, presaging any of my comments with a disclaimer. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And the thing about Mark Twain is we don't know him if we've only seen the movie versions of some of his more popular books, i.e. The Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court or The Prince and the Pauper or even, indeed, the book we're talking about, Huckleberry Finn. It is important to understand the man. I go back to Samuel Clemens, the reporter, who in his early days went about providing stories and and commenting on what was happening in the world in newspapers around the country in the late 1800s. You're right, of course, the way that Hollywood and Disney smother good literature with saccharin, with sugar, and make it unpalatable to all but the sweetest of palates, and certainly uh, pollute or destroy the literature in the process. There's an edginess to Mark Twain. If one wanted to emphasize or accentuate the edginess, we could even say there's a cynicism to Mark Twain, which is, of course, not present in in these saccharine film adaptations. But certainly there's this tension between the so-called realism that he seemed to espouse and the romanticism that he seemed to satirize. So certainly Twain as a writer is very different from the impression of Twain 
that we might get if we've only seen the, f the film adaptations with Bing Crosby and, mm -hmm. and what have you, rather than uh, reading the books themselves. Huckleberry Finn is quite a challenge for many just because of the use of language, the particular vernacular that Twain chooses to write the story. Unlike reading a Jane Austen, which is so precise in her English, Twain can be difficult to navigate. Well, it's certainly good for uh, an Englishman from London to hear uh, an American gal from Michigan say that she has <laughs> difficulty understanding the uh, the colloquialisms of a Huckabee film, because certainly that is the experience that, that I have as well. And also, if you're talking about sensibilities, I prefer the, the high style. You give me Jane Austen or give me John Henry Newman or give me Shakespeare over the modern penchant for for even sort of dumbing down into the colloquial. I, mean, I, I hate it in the liturgy and I don't, don't particularly like it in liter literature. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, what Twain was doing was something back in the 1870s was something very new and very avant-garde. And in that, he is to be commended in, because it's obviously a, he blazed a trail that, that many others have followed for good or ill. And just as a footnote, again, there are some descriptions of human persons of the African-American community in which he uses a term that is now considered a cursory as far as a depiction of someone. And that can be very challenging as well. Yes, it can. But again, I think that what we were saying about the treatment of Shylock and the Merchant of Venice is applicable here that it is true, no doubt, that the white Americans treated the blacks in America, particularly during the time of slavery, with a patronizing attitude at best or a downright racist attitude at worst. But you do have to try to get inside the, the culture of the time and not to, again, see it through the lens of the 21st century. doesn't mean you have to agree with things. You have to see, see a culture as it is. You don't have to endorse it, mm -hmm. you know, but you do have to understand it for what it is at the time in order to understand what's going on. And when we're going to be discussing also, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the same thing applies. We really do need to understand how the various classes of people in terms of different races and different religions, different classes, how they perceived their neighbors in those days. Again, it's important for us not to judge superstitiously from the perspective that we presume, presumptuously, mm -hmm. that our culture is superior to the cultures of the past. I mean, we should really take a good look at our own culture if we think that we're superior to virtually anybody else because there's lots of problems in our own culture, as we know. So again, to avoid the temptation when we see words that affront our sensibilities, avoid the temptation to thereby become supercilious towards you know, Twain as the writer or the characters in the novel using those words. They are extraordinary characters that have really taken root in American folklore. Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, just so many of them that this is one of those books that is very important for an American audience, as I think the rest of the world to read, to help understand who we are. Absolutely. And there are certain works of literature that, that work better as myth or mythos than actually as literature. You know, I think, for instance, what well, Frankenstein we've discussed next year, so in, in, in fall 2011, we'll be bringing out Dracula. Now, these are works that, are, that as literature are not great. Mm -hmm. But they're very important and very influential as myth because they seem to to establish a sort of a, a story cycle or a psyche that have, impacts the whole of culture. And I think that Huckleberry Finn does that because I think with Huckleberry Finn, it's a tale of the unknown. It's the frontier and sort of people in the East reading about Missouri in the 1860s, 1870s. Well, in fact, it's set 
back prior to that, a few years earlier to uh, Twain's childhood. You know, from the mid-19th century, this sort of frontier land that captures the imagination. I mean, in the 20th century, Hollywood style, I mean, the whole Wild West, the whole cowboy genre. And I would say, as regards not just a myth, a story that sort of encapsulates an aspect of the American nation and culture and its sense of self-identity, but something which establishes the image of the United States to the rest of the world. I remember reading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer when I was a, a boy, and your whole imagination is, is, is opened up to a, a new world. I mean, a new world, not just capital N, capital W, as in America, but a new world. It's a frontier beyond which an English child reading in the 1960s or 70s could not traverse without the help of this literature. Mm. Mark Twain, as you said, sets the story up, and we have... Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, who have romantic notions of what the world should be like, what their role will be in it. Huckleberry Finn may be more passive, of course, than Tom Sawyer, but yet he's lifted up as the main character in this particular book. That's right. I think in the adult version, if you like, one of the things that I think happens in the work is the tension between the pragmatism that we might call realism of Huckleberry Finn and the romanticism, which we might call naivete, of Tom Sawyer. And this really is, if you like, uh, part of the edginess, part of the borderland about what is reality. You know, if you want to understand reality, you know, do you see it through the eyes of a romantic or do you see it through the eyes of a realist? And, you know, if it's a realist, what is realism? Is realism really just cynicism? And if it's cynicism, is it really any more real than romanticism? Mm -hmm. You know, it is seeing something through unnaturally dark colored classes going to allow you to see reality any more clearly than seeing it through rose colored spectacles is realism perhaps somewhere between the two what is realism yeah, you mm -hmm. know so christianity it defines realism philosophically but i think that, that with, with mark twain there's a tendency i think to idealize the pragmatic uh, the utilitarian and I think that Huckleberry Finn, you know, his, he has his struggles with conscience. And I think that the moral dimension of Huckleberry Finn is mo mostly rooted in those struggles with conscience. But, you know, in the end, the Huckleberry Finn that emerges is still the pragmatic Huckleberry Finn is really just going to do whatever is easiest and most convenient at the time, rather than what might be right, but just going to be more difficult. He becomes involved with the runaway slave, Jim. And they hop on the raft and they're going down this river and encountering all kinds of moral dilemmas. And in particular, even their own relationship, Huck struggles with. And it's through that that Mark Twain is trying to help the nation struggle going down that, because this actually is written after the Civil War. Yes, it is. And at a time, of course, when the country is very divided, I mean, it was obviously divided by the Civil War. Well, of course, historically, it was divided before the Civil War, which is mm -hmm. where it led to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it was divided, obviously, during the Civil War. But it remained divided after the Civil War, as we know, for a very long while. So what is the American identity in the wake of that terrible war, very bloody war? And I think that one of the things that Twain's dealing with here is, is to actually to ask those questions. And I think one of the reasons I think that the novel works as a story is the fact that it's not didactic. I don't think that Twain is, is prescribing what it means to be American. I think he's observing with his journalistic eye. He's satirizing with his somewhat perhaps embittered eye. But he's not giving answers. I mean, he certainly isn't preaching. So, you know, we do have this relationship between the, the pragmatic Caucasian American 
and the uh, escaped slave? What's the duty of the one to the other? What should their relationship be? And what are the difficulties involved in that? And the sense of, is there a community between the two? Because there's a community between Huckleberry Finn and, and Jim. But as you rightly say, there's a, a great deal of what we would now refer to as racism when we start talking about groups as opposed to individuals. Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, Chapter 1 Notice Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. By order of the author, per G.G., Chief of Ordnance. Explanatory. In this book, a number of dialects are used, to wit, the Missouri Negro dialect, the extremist form of the backwoods southwestern dialect, the ordinary Pike County dialect, and four modified varieties of this last. The shadings have not been done in a haphazard fashion, or by guesswork but painstakingly, and with the trustworthy guidance and support of personal familiarity with these several forms of speech. I make this explanation for the reason that without it many readers would suppose that all these characters were trying to talk alike, and not succeeding. The Author The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn Scene, The Mississippi Valley Time, Forty to fifty years ago. Chapter One. Civilizing Huck, Miss Watson, Tom Sawyer Waits. You don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. But that ain't no matter. That book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth, mainly. There was things which he stretched, but mainly he told the truth. That is nothing. I never seen anybody but lied one time or another without it was Aunt Polly or the widow, or maybe Mary. Aunt Polly, Tom's Aunt Polly she is, and Mary and the widow Douglas is all told about in that book, which is mostly a true book, with some stretchers, as I said before. You're also watching really quite a conversion story in Huckleberry Finn himself, even in a very passive way, because he's not overtly struggling it, it, there's even a point where he's on the raft and he is wondering am i doing the right thing by keeping this runaway slave this stolen property away from the person who owns him i mean and he's thinking this and struggling that's one, in of that those, dilemma. one of those moments in the story we talked about those sort of three key moral focus points in The Merchant of Venice, but I think that the, the, the key moral focus points in Huckabee Finn are exactly these moments where this sort of the pragmatic, normally carefree Huck is troubled by his conscience. And how does he respond? Now, now his conscience is speaking to him. How does he respond to that prompting? And I think they're the moments where the moral dimension of the work uh, shine forth. Yeah, he's faced with an issue that we even sometimes t have today in our own laws where something is legally, I'm s supposed to return. I'm supposed to return him. I'm supposed to do this. But he's got to know the heart of Jim. It's the perennial question, going right back to Sophocles and Antigone. Where does our ultimate duty lie? Does it lie with the laws of the state? 
Does it lie with our duty to our family? Does it lie with our duty to our fellow man, to our neighbor? Does it lie with our duty to God? And if these things come into conflict with each other, where ultimately does our duty lie? And therefore, what ultimately does our conscience tell us we have to do? And uh, that's exactly it. We have the law of the land saying one thing, that uh, of course this is before the Civil War, before the laws have changed, that this is stolen property, Jim is the property of the slaveholder, you have to return him. On the other hand, well, Jim is also a human being, I now know and I've befriended, can he be property in that same sense? So they're the questions, again, the questions being posed by Huck's conscience, and of course that is itself Twain posing the question in the work. And you can also see the work that Twain is doing as someone who is trying to address a nation in some quarters very racist in different parts of the country and he is lifting up this character of Jim in a very simple way in a very kind way how noble he is I mean, I'm thinking of that scene where Tom Sawyer is shot and he has a chance for freedom and he stays with Tom Sawyer the other important thing of course about a, a work like this is most people in the United States at that time would not have known their black fellow mm-hmm. Americans on a one-to-one personal basis. By reading vicariously about a relationship you know, between a white American and a black American in a, a novel, we see the human bonding, we see the human relationship, we see the humanity and the individuality, individual personality in those characters, and therefore you humanize the other. Otherwise, you can talk about something in, as a concept, as an abstract concept, of course, mm-hmm. that we're all humans and we all have to have equal rights. You can talk about that. But if you never actually meet and know someone, then it merely remains an abstract concept and not a, an incarnated reality. Now, in the absence of knowing real black people, the nearest that many people that read Huckleberry Finn got to knowing a real black person was to actually read about Jim in the novel. And that's, again, why Mark Twain is an important author to read, but also this particular work in the Ignatius Critical Edition, because if he were to have written a straight book that would have moralized the issue of the day, it probably would not have been read. But the fact that he used comedy, he used satire, he used the vernacular, it brought, it hooked America into that story. It's the power of art. If it had been a non-fictional treatise about some of the issues that are addressed in the novel, it wouldn't be read in in as many numbers, that's for sure. It wouldn't have been a bestseller. Works of non-fiction talking about socio-political issues rarely become bestsellers. Certainly, however, it would not be read today at all, except by historians of that period, very specialist readership. The power of art is you universalize principles in, in, in the form of story, and that remains read because of the beauty of the story for years, decades, generations, centuries even, after the work is written. And that's the potency of it remains through the fact that it's art, through the fact that its aesthetic power actually adds and accentuates any political or moral or ethical power it has. Art can and does speak far more powerfully than works of non-fiction. That's really an important value that the Holy Father, the Vatican, has brought forward recently about Catholics being out in the world where you're at, and in particular in the arts and media and communications, 
to bring up those values. Right. Well, John Paul II himself, of course, was a writer, was a playwright and a poet. His letter to artists was very important, very powerful. Pope Benedict is continuing that understanding of the, of the power of the art. We need to understand, you know, we're made in the image of God. And that imageness of God in us, yes, it's our ability to love. It's our ability to reason. But it's also our ability to create, to be creative. Creativity is part of God's presence and God's image in us. So if we are given those creative gifts, then it's our calling, our vocation to use those in the arts. So if we have the ability to write, we should write. If we're musical, we should play or compose music. If we can paint, we should be painting. These are God-given gifts. And as we've seen from the works we've been discussing and the works being published by the Ignatius Critical Editions, have an enormous power to transform culture for the better and to win souls for Christ and to have an evangelizing potency. So we, we make a big mistake if we think somehow that we have to be dealing only in apologetics or non-fiction, you know, if we want to change society. No, the power of art can transform society. And that those who are Catholic authors, they do not necessarily need to make a Catholic fiction book. Better to do a good fiction book with Catholic elements. Well, the thing is that great literature is rarely successful if it's preachy, if it's didactic. There are exceptions, but they're rare. Generally speaking, the personhood of the author is going to emerge in the work if you just try to tell a good story. Because God will work with you, and what will be produced will be something astonishing. I mean, the best way of proceeding, if you want to get practical about this, is the way that Tolkien speaks about the Lord of the Rings. He says, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously at first, consciously in the revision. So in other words, he didn't set out to write a Catholic work. But he wrote something that was Catholic because he's Catholic, even though he wasn't trying to make it. And then he tweaked it. You know, he crossed the T's and dotted the I's to make sure that there was a theological and philosophical coherence in it that may not necessarily have been there in the in the flow of consciousness, initial telling of the story. So in that, if you want to about how do we proceed to make good Christian art? No, we don't set out to teach or preach. We set out to tell a good story. And then once we've told the good story, we can go back and look at it and see how do we tweak it to make sure that it is not saying anything that we don't want to say. We don't need to descend to the level of didacticism. And, of course, Mark Twain, not a Catholic, and yet as you read the book, as with all the other books of the Ignatius Critical Editions, I see a, that whole line of extraordinary virtue leading to conversion. Well, the thing is, of course, what we're dealing with, Ignatius Critical Editions, are the great works of Western civilization. Now, Western civilization basically is built upon the pillars of the Catholic Church. But throughout the history of Western civilization, every individual is not a Catholic. And God gives gifts to everybody. Now, of course, we're meant to use those gifts to glorify him, regardless of who we are. But if those gifts are given freely anyway, the analogy would be the gift of life. God doesn't only give life to Catholics. Life is a gift. Mm -hmm. God doesn't only give talent to Catholics. Talents are a gift. So these God-given talents are used by all sorts of people from all sorts of philosophies. But the point is, because the talent comes from God, as soon as you start telling a story, as soon as you start producing art, truths emerge. Again, Tolkien uses the phrase splintered fragments of the one true light. Uh, those splintered fragments emerge. So yes, Mark Twain is, is not a Catholic. Far from it. But when he tells a good story... 
goodness emerges from that story. And that's what we're trying to bring out in all of these great works of literature, is to show that timeless truths, truths about morality, truths about good versus evil, emerge from all works of literature, from, from Homer, pagan Greek, through the great Christian writers, through the writers like Mark Twain, and not particularly Christian at all. But these great truths emerge. Mark Twain reminds me in many ways of Charles Dickens and the fact that he came to prominence through the serialization of his stories, which would lead to the novels, and that in his characters, again, so rich and varied, just kind of spring out of the earth. They're so of their place. I agree with you completely. I think that in this sense, at least, both of them are wonderful storytellers. Their characters spring to life and become larger than life, in fact. The Dickensian character is larger than life, and Mark Twain's characters are larger than life. And the other thing about them, I think they're rooted in the culture of their time. We think of Dickens, we think of Dickensian London. Mm-hmm. You know, if we want to think of the frontier in the middle, middle of the 19th century, uh, you know, the Mississippi, then Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn comes irresistibly to our mind. Those things that they definitely have in common. The one thing I think also strikes me instantly as being different between the two of them is I think that Dickens was much more profoundly Christian in the natural sense of the word. And I think that the goodness of that Christianity is much more evident in Dickens's novels than is the case in Twain's. Yes, it seems as though in, in this book in particular, there's a real cynicism in some quarters. I mean, and Tom Sawyer really comes out as the character. I hate to say it, but it's, it's almost buffoonery in his idealism in some ways. Yeah, and obviously Tom Sawyer's romanticism is being caricatured as part of the satire. The whole of human history, intellectually, is the mistake of not reacting against something which is wrong, but overreacting against it. Mm-hmm. So that the human history, intellectually speaking, is always oscillating from one side to the other, and the via media <laughs> is always missed as it, as it swings from one to the other. So, yes, romanticism was an overreaction against rationalism, but the anti-romanticism of the likes of Twain is, again, overreacting again in the direction of a, a realism, which is really a cynicism. Again, this is why reading Huckleberry Finn is so important, especially in context with the critical editions, because the guidance that's given as you go through the text helps you to flex those critical muscles in your mind. Absolutely. And I would say at this juncture as well that the woman who edited the Ignatius Critical Edition of Huckleberry Finn, the one that we have editing most of the American literature, is Mary Reichardt, who's a wonderful scholar at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, who's edited the American Catholic Encyclopedia of Literature. Her bona fides are superb, and her editing of the edition, her writing of the introduction, and the essay she includes are simply superb. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this episode along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To find more books in the Ignatius Critical Editions, visit ignatius.com, the website for the publisher, Ignatius Press. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com in cooperation with Ignatius Press. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join us next time for Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.